Third out from the 200 Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs. I do my guest on this edition of Fangraphs. I do making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance as the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as is the case every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, of course, this week is the World Series in progress between the San Francisco Giants and Kansas City Royals. Just as Charles Dickens might have suggested, it is simultaneously the best and worst of times. There's simultaneously uh, much and also little to say about the World Series. Much because it is the event which determines the champion of the baseball season. Little because nerds are only capable of saying so much about one game at a time. Indeed, Dave Cameron speaks to that exact point in the conversation to follow. And then at some point you just realize... You know, they're not going to do what we suggest. They're not going to pinch it for the pitcher in the fourth inning. Uh, they're probably not going to be as aggressive with bullpen usage as they should be. Um, you know, they're going to make things, they're going to do things that are mathematically incorrect. If we get mad at them every time, we're going to be mad the whole time. Intelligent comments like that, and perhaps less intelligent comments, to follow in this, what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. And when does it begin? Right now. Hey, Cameron. Hi. How are, uh, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Let's do this, right? Uh, yeah. I will. I will warn you that there's some chance that uh, someone's going to interrupt me in a few minutes. Okay. So we will see. Is it? Uh, we got a VIP situation. Uh, plumber. Huh? He's a plumber, so I guess that's a very important person. <laughs> very important plumber. Yeah. If um, if you're having problems with uh, your pipes, then a plumber is essential. Uh, yeah, either that or Metamucil. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah. And it's a poop joke, which <laughs> which I uh, always a good way to start the. Pot. I can always appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Um. Uh, let's see. Okay. Yeah. The uh, what are we what are we talking about here? There's, well, the playoffs are going on. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. You don't want to lead off with like uh, some random factoid from your week. No, I know. But well, let's. Well, I want to say something first. Is that would uh, I think you just uh, just to this afternoon uh, you published a post with regard to the uh, the pace of the the playoff games this year. Yeah. And what is it, 25 something seconds between 25.4 seconds. Yeah. And, and what is that compared to previous years? Did you look? Uh, I don't, I don't know compared to previous years. I had Appleman pull this from just for 2014, so. Right. Uh, we, I mean, if you had to guess, if, uh, if, if I said, uh, without looking at this particular data, um, even before the playoffs had started, would you to say, I, I would say, do you think that the pace between pitchers will be faster or slower than during the regular season? You would have answered? Slower. Slower. Yeah. Because? But, uh, leverage, I think. It's mm-hmm. speculation, but I think pitchers take more time when the game is on the line, and they, they either plan more or shake off signs or something. But I think high leverage situations lead to more time between pitches, and hard to get much higher leverage than the postseason. Right. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, on average, relief pitchers have uh, slower paces than starters. Right, and I think that's a factor, and this is, again, speculation. I think that's part of uh, the leverage factor is that relievers pitch in higher leverage situations, so therefore relievers take longer. I think if it was flipped and relievers pitched the first few innings, uh, relievers would probably pitch faster than starters. What do we – I feel like we even met someone, like a 
it, it wasn't this most recent FanGraphs thing that um, the uh, during uh, during the Brooks baseball event. Um, yeah, the, the Saber Seminar in Boston. Yeah, yeah, right. But I think last year I remember talking with someone who studies actually like the 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 neuroscience uh, uh, relating to time between pitches, and you know, of course there's there's a there's a a narrative that if you um, if, if if you've thrown a knuckleball or one day, then you throw a harder thrower the next day, or vice versa, so that it might um, you know it might alter the timing. Uh, for the batters, right? But what about like even between pitches? Do we know what what the time limit is there, or if there's any effect? So I think the rule the rule book actually says the time limit's 12 seconds between pitches okay. if there's no one on base. Uh, not not enforced, obviously. No no one does that. Um, not I even what like Dickey or Burley, right? They're usually yeah, right. They're 17 or 18 seconds. Well, it could be that we're measuring different things. Like our pace between pitches is based on. The timestamps based on the pitch effects recordings. It could be that Major League Baseball means like from when they come set on the rubber or something. So it could be, uh, you know, maybe we're measuring a longer period of time than MLB defines as that 12 second period. But even then, that's still clearly not enforced. Uh, as I noted in the post, Luke Gregerson was spending 40 seconds between pitches in the Hello. wild card game. Uh, you know, there's no way he was within the 12 second, uh, limitation. Uh, although he was pitching primarily with runners on base, so maybe he was got an exception anyway. But uh, I don't know that we have a lot of evidence for pitchers varying their time between pitches affecting hitter timing. I think we do see it with runners, uh, and I think that was one of the drivers of why the Orioles were so slow against the Royals, is they were trying to throw off the timing of Gerard Dyson and Lorenzo Cain and, and such players. Yeah, in a, in a, So say I throw a batter, not that it would be effective, but say a good pitcher throws a fastball to a batter, and then the next pitch he throws is a changeup, right? Yeah. If he throws that changeup five seconds later, if that were theoretically the possibility, it seems to me as though that would have a greater effect, the change in speeds, than if he threw the changeup like a day later, right? Because that imprint of the first pitch is not still present in the batter's mind in the second example. Do we know how long that imprint lasts from the first to the second pitch? I don't think we do. I think that's an interesting area of study is like how much lag is there in a, a hitter's kind of mindset of what they expect to see in a certain pitch. Uh, how much of that is the most recent pitch they saw? How much of that is like the most recent pitch the previous batter saw? How much of that is from video study or games before? I think this is a, you know, if someone out there is listening and says, I really want to study something fascinating, this would be a really good topic to go after and be like, uh, here, let's, See if we can figure out, and you certainly have to talk to players and, and do some extensive research, but figure out what players use to kind of come up with the patterns that they expect based on previous pitches seen. Right. And it seems like if someone were going to pursue that line of inquiry, it might also help if they had an advanced degree in, in neuroscience, yes? I mean, it couldn't hurt. Right. Yeah, couldn't hurt. <laughs> is, there anything, is there any situation where an advanced degree in neuroscience actually would be, wouldn't, wouldn't be ideal? I imagine if you're applying for a job at McDonald's, you might right. be considered overqualified. Be considered, yeah, you might be you might be uppity eventually. Is right. that right? Or if you're trying to maybe date someone who's very emotional and doesn't want a logical partner. Oh yeah, it yeah, um, could potentially get in the way. I know about that? Okay. The um, okay. So, but but at the same time, was like I think they're uh, well, the Arizona Fall League. This um, right now, they're experimenting with pitch clocks, and I think they actually did that in the Independent Atlantic League. At points during their particular season too, it does not. Many changes are not made um, with the sort of tradition of baseball uh, being the, the reason it's pointed to. 
I don't I usually think that certain rules should be changed, but having a pitch clock visible during a game, it seems it's irksome to me. And I, I, I assume it I assume it's irksome to other people as well. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that we probably heard said repeatedly over our lives is that one of the great things about baseball is it's the only game played without a clock. I don't think that baseball wants to change that cliche and, and add an actual clock. I do think there are probably ways to get at the same goal without actually installing some kind of big LED board counting down from 20 between every pitch, mm-hmm. uh, where you could make pitchers aware, uh, probably in spring training or something along those lines, that they're going to be measured on the average time of pitches between, uh, you know, between pitches, uh, and they're going to get feedback, kind of like an umpire gets feedback on the strike zone, and maybe fines will go along with pitchers who exceed some average. So, you know, whether the line is 20 seconds or 23 seconds or whatever they decide the, they decide the correct amount is, and they might have to phase this in, maybe it's half a second per year or something, uh, where they graduate the line down to what they want it to be. And just say, you know, we're not going to enforce this on every single pitch. But after a game, if you've exceeded the, uh, you know, required maximum for a number of uh, seconds between pitches, you will lose five grand or ten grand or some some amount that the Major League Baseball Players Association would agree to. That's not so onerous that, uh, you know, and maybe it gets redistributed into the player pool that goes into some kind of benefits retirement. So it's not just the owners collecting money, uh, but that maybe there's some way to kind of change the behavior of pitchers without them actually staring at a physical clock. Um, the, if, you, if you have hypothesized that pitchers uh, will work at a slower pace with runners on base, then would, would not such a rule actually um, – wouldn't it penalize pitchers who, who allowed guys on base a lot? <laughs> yeah, all the worst pitchers. They're <laughs> yeah. already not making any money because they're bad, and now we're taking <laughs> money away from them because they're bad. Uh, right. I mean, this might be an actual thing we'd have to study is, like, whether the line should be different with guys on base or not. Uh, I think relievers might argue that maybe the line should be longer for them as well. I think if, if players have a natural tendency to take more time in more important situations, which I think goes along with just, you know, regular life. I mean, you know, when... We're confronted with uh, challenging decisions. I think most of us probably evaluate more heavily and, and take our time to make the decision. Um, so maybe, you know, it's for the first five innings, it's, uh, you know, 18 seconds. And then inning six through eight, it's 21 seconds. And then inning nine, it's 23 seconds. I mean, I think that would get a little uh, problematic in, in terms of the logistics. Right. Um, but, you know, there might be a, an argument that there shouldn't be one single number all throughout the game. Right. Um, did, is there any indication, do you know, any research that if we take longer to make a decision that we make a better decision? I mean, I I don't know. I, mean, I haven't read that study, but I would think that it's probably true. I think uh, rash decisions are generally not great ones. I think this is probably the best way to say this would be like in relationships, right? Like if we looked at the long-term uh, success rate of marriages where people date for, you know, more than a year or more than two years – I would imagine it's probably higher than the success rate of marriages where people get married after three weeks. Yeah, that's probably true. Although I think that if people have lived together, that, that, that as opposed to not having lived together, I'm not sure that that helps. Uh, I think I read a study not too long ago that said that does help. But, yeah, yeah I'm sure there's probably been studies by... Well, it's possible that my that my Catholic family was just saying that. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I didn't live with my wife beforehand, and we're doing okay so far. So, you yeah. know, N of, N of 1, or N of 2 in your case, because Callie hasn't left you yet. Yeah, but we did live together. Oh, well, yeah. there you go. Oh, in, wait, wait, N of one on the opposite direction. In sin, yeah, 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 sin. Yeah, yeah and she, and she's about to leave me. I think that's pretty yeah, clear. Yeah, I mean, uh, any day now. Any day. The yeah. 
there's been considerable electronic ink spilt at Fangraphs.com in the service of celebrating Madison Bumgarner of late. And I guess it's not very shocking, considering he's been quite good. Um, I suppose this is a this is the an initial and also banal question. Uh, ought we ought we be surprised? Ought we to be surprised by how good he's pitched? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think if any player over some 50-inning stretch posts an ERA of 1.13, we should be surprised. Right. I mean, this is an outlier, uh, you know, just by results. I think by overall performance, Bumgarner hasn't been all that different. Uh, if you're just going off the fielding independent numbers, his walk rate's a little lower, his strikeout rate's a little higher, but not dramatically different than what we'd expect. Uh, but his postseason BABIP is 183, which, you know, uh, kudos to him for doing that for 47 innings, uh, but not a result anyone should have expected. Right. Now, uh, uh, August uh, Fagerstrom keeps writing about Madison Bumgarner's pitches. At first he tells us, hey, listen, Fagerstrom, get it right. First he tells us that the fastball is the most exciting pitch that uh, Madison Bumgarner is throwing. And then he talks about his, uh, what, the slow curveball he's got, right? Yeah, he likes Madison Bumgarner's pitches. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Why not just, why not just, we could do like a pitch by pitch account. We'll just have August on. I'll watch the game with him and be like, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I think well, that's kind of what you could do right now. It's just everything he throws. Yeah, that was a good one. I think uh, one of the things I found interesting last night is toward the end of the game, it felt like everything he threw was a breaking ball. Like mm-hmm. almost he abandoned the fastball. And at the end of the game, it was just slider, slider, cutter, you know, big slurvy, slow curve thing. Uh, just a constant barrage of breaking balls. Uh, and the Royals weren't able to do anything about it. I mean, for all the talk of Bumgarner's velocity being up in his fastball, uh, being the best pitch of the second half in Major League Baseball, he really beat the Royals down with breaking balls last night. And it, it, do we expect? Now, we, we, you noted already. You've noted that um, um, pitchers are more likely to, to take more time in between pitches. Uh, do we do we expect them maybe to throw more of their secondary stuff um, during the playoffs, uh, with a view to maybe uh, inducing more swings and misses? Yeah, I'm not sure I've seen that studied either. I do think we see more off-speed pitches as the game goes on. Uh, there is kind of the established the fastball mindset that, you know, early in the game and the first time through the order, we see more fastballs, and then later in the game we see more off-speed stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that changes dramatically in the postseason where guys just get away from their fastball early in October. Uh, my guess would be no, but I don't know for sure. Okay. And uh, with regard to Bumgarner, oh, yes, um well, I don't know if there's much more to say. If there, you, could, what, you could talk about them all day or you, we're done. Which one do you think? Which one are we close well, to? I, I don't want to talk about them all day. So if no. those are my only two options, then <laughs> I, have a, I have a life to live. But I think that the thing in your uh, curiosity about Bumgarner and his place in um, in postseason history has led you to the uh, to realize how good uh, Kurt Schilling was in 2001. Yeah, I think uh, when I wrote the piece for Fox last week, I – Felt a little bad that I didn't get to give more kind of, uh, not glory, but uh, celebrate Schilling's 2001 postseason performance uh, because the piece was about Bumgarner, and I didn't want to, you know, take away from what, what Bumgarner had just accomplished. But in looking back at Schilling's remarkable run, it was like, man, this is a thing that people need to remember. And so, uh, again, from last night, I wanted to write about Bumgarner, but felt like this was a good opportunity to remind people of just how crazy good Schilling was 13 years ago. Uh, especially considering two of his starts in the World Series came on three days rest. Uh, he was facing the Yankees. He was pitching in hitters' parks. It was 2001, so people were still hitting home runs. Uh, you know, the quality of his 
uh, strength of schedule or the context, I guess, in which he pitched was very difficult, and he was as good raw numbers as Bumgarner or better, even by strikeouts and FIP and, and those things. Uh, I think, you know, it's going to be, Bumgarner could, you know, with uh, some innings and in relief in game seven, push himself into the conversation of having the best postseason pitching performance of all time. But Schilling is, um, you know, pretty clearly the, the top spot right now. And, you know, maybe surprisingly, uh, not getting a lot of credit for the Hall of Fame, even though he would be a viable Hall of Famer without a good postseason record. And then you have this guy who had, you know, the best postseason performance anyone's ever seen, and he still can't get in the Hall of Fame. So, wait, so wait, what are his, uh, has he already been eligible for the Hall of Fame? Yeah, twice, and he got 30% the first year, 35% the first year, and 30% the second year. He's like not even close to getting elected. Oh, well, why? The, voter, the voters do not like pitchers. Basically. Really? I mean, if you look at the standards for, you know, we've talked about before, the bubble for uh, war for a position player to get into the Hall of Fame conversation is somewhere between 60 and 70 war. Like, those are the guys who are, some of them are in, some of them aren't. Yeah. Uh, pretty much everyone over 70 is in on the position player side. Uh, Kurt Schilling's 83 war by either FIP or runs allowed. Uh, is 19th all-time by FIP, 32nd all-time by runs allowed. It's not even sniffing it. Mike Lucina's over 80 war, uh, not even close. Uh, you know, I think the, for whatever reason, the barrier has become 300 wins, uh, and t- voters are very reluctant to move too far away from that. So if you get into the 250 range, they'll consider you, and you have to have, a, like, very good numbers, uh, on other categories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if you're not a very good pitcher, if you get 250 plus wins, you know, like Jack Morris or something, you'll get a lot of consideration. But Kurt Schilling's at 216. And for a lot of voters, they just won't get past that number. They'll say, oh, he's 84 shy of the, the magic number. I don't care how good he was. He didn't get to 300 wins. He didn't get that close. This is stupid. This is very silly. This yes. is dumb. Yeah. yeah, yeah right? and, the, the uh, way that Hall of Famers are treating pitchers from the kind of steroid era is absurd. And I would like to say that it does not feel good uh, to possess righteous indignation on behalf of Kurt Schilling. <laughs> that that part because he's a little bit of a silly man. Um, but this it's even uh, it's even worse that uh, he's not getting credit for I guess his ability in the baseball field. Now he he strikes me as a sort of person, uh, sort of pitcher, who maybe would have benefited um, more than other sorts because I think he I believe he had uh, I mean he had obviously st- uh, fantastic strikeout walk rates and a bit of a fly ball profile as well that he would have benefited maybe more than other sorts of pitchers from. Um, the drop in home runs, the decrease in home runs. Maybe. I mean, I don't know that we know for a fact that fly ball pitchers would get a uh, larger increase. I mean, it does make some logical sense Mm -hmm. uh, that guys who pitch up in the zone would be more successful against this kind of competition. Mm -hmm. Uh, But right, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at where Schilling pitched, you know, spending significant amounts of time in hitters' parks, uh, you know, obviously Boston and the American League East, the time he was pitching there was... Uh, a beast. So, you know, he pitched in one of the most difficult offensive divisions in a, you know, park that's not friendly, uh, for fly ball pitchers, uh, and was clearly one of the best pitchers of his generation. I think the problem, I mean, not to harp too much on the Hall of Fame thing, but the, the kind of the standard baseball writers have set up, the only pitchers from like a 1990s, 2000s era who are going to get into the Hall of Fame were the guys that pitched for the Braves, Randy Johnson and, and, uh, Pedro Martinez. And everybody else falls short of that. It's like these are, you know, Maddox and uh, Johnson and Martinez are three of the 10 or 15 or maybe 20 best pitchers of all time. And then, you know, Glavin and Smoltz are very good. Uh, and everyone else is being thrown out of the 
the rank for not living up to inner circle Hall of Famers, which is insane. I think if you look at Schilling and Messina and some of these guys, they were very clearly uh, better than you know, most other pitchers in the Hall of Fame and very clearly better than a lot of position players going into the Hall of Fame. But because they aren't, don't match up against their peers, who just happen to be three of the best pitchers ever, <laughs> they're, they're getting excluded. Oh, man, that's rough. Yeah, tough to be a pitcher. Yeah. First, you got to deal with your uh, arm always trying to fall off. Yeah. You know, and then uh, once you make it through that, then uh, nobody wants to lead you in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I think uh, eventually these guys will get in. I mean, they're basically guaranteed Veterans Committee uh, elections, but that's you know 15 years down the line. Uh, I would hope that eventually the BBWAA and their members will see the folly of their ways and not make these guys wait another decade. Okay. Hey, uh, what about? Um... What about who we wait? Who are we talking about now? Oh wait! Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Hey, what about the Player of the Year award? This because I, uh, I was talking about awards reminds me that that was a thing that we had done. It is a thing that we have voted on that we have not yet announced. Oh yes, but when do we? Or is it going to be a surprise? It is most likely going to be announced next Monday. I will say there's some logistical things we're trying to square away. So don't you know come string me up uh, and and you know cut my head off if we don't announce it next Monday. But I think that's the target. It's good that you mentioned that you mentioned that people should cut your head off. Yeah, I would like to not be dead over a pseudo promise. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so it, we so hype. Uh, so let's see, tentatively next Monday. Yeah, tentatively okay. uh, November fourth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, the World Series will be over by then. It will be over this Wednesday. It will be over regardless, yeah. and then I. Well, think... I guess it could end Thursday if the game goes very long. Right. Um, and then uh, Friday, if um, the unspeakable happens. <laughs> I think if the game goes until Friday, uh, Major League Baseball will amp up their pace of play committee by a magnitude of 10. <laughs> the, and then uh, it's also possible, let's see, or it will just be Monday might be the last day. Let's see, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, that will be the last day that teams are able to uh, negotiate with players directly. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it depends on whether the World Series ends Tuesday or Wednesday, but it's five days after the World Series free agency begins. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, next week, basically, is the beginning of free agency. Right. And then if you remind me historically, what does that what does that first week typically look like, if anything? No news whatsoever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think uh, generally what happens is the mid-tier free agents wait for the big guys to sign and kind of set the market, and the big guys are not going to sign right away. Uh most of them are going to drag it out into mid-November to maybe even the beginning of December when the winter meetings begin. But they're going to, you know, survey a bunch of teams, kind of get the bidding war started. Sometimes they'll take travels and, and go visit stadiums and visit teams and get recruited. And so you have very few high-ranking high free agents sign early. And the mid-tier guys are generally the fallback plans for the uh, top tier guys and they're going to sit around and wait for the market to get set. So you'll have very little activity probably for several weeks. Right. And then, uh, well, and of course, in the meantime, we have uh, qualified offers either being extended or not. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So next week we'll have a kind of the period of, of the one week qualifying offer guys. Uh, some of them will obviously reject. Uh, there will be a few that might be bubble guys. Maybe David Robertson is probably the most interesting this year. Uh, of whether he'll accept or not, or whether the Yankees will offer. I think they will, and I think I think he won't. I think he'll, he'll reject it and go on the market. But there's a possibility that he could say, you know, $15 million for one year, I'll take that. And let's see, besides that, then we have, 
uh, what's the qualifying offer? Then the, oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. The other question with regard to um, to the players who have signed earlier in the free agent season as opposed to later, haven't we typically seen that they're getting uh, more money? Per projected win, or am I misremembering? No, that's correct. I think guys who sign early do so because they're getting a, a an offer that's maybe more than they would have expected to get. Uh, so basically, you pay a premium the earlier you want to sign a guy. Right. Uh, prices fall as the as the winter goes on. If you want to take the pick of the litter and get you know when everyone's on the board and you you want this guy to sign with you so that you get first choice of who you want, you pay a premium. And then eventually, as you know, more guys sign and there's fewer jobs available, guys' prices come down because they need a team to sign with. Okay. All right. Um, I don't know, Dave Cameron. Uh, what else we got to talk about? I mean, the World Series. I think I think I think you should tease one result from the contract crowdsourcing post going up tomorrow. Oh, if I should do it right now. Yeah. Do you do you I mean, have you calculated any of the results yet? No. Oh. Well, then you can't do a tease. Yeah, I won't do a tease. But I'll tell you what I have to do as I am uh, as I do begin calculating them. I have to put up a couple more ballots. Oh, who'd you forget this year? Uh, probably most notably Rafael Soriano. Hmm, I'm pretty sure he was on the list that we passed around, didn't we? Yeah, but I, well, I don't know. He didn't make it to the end. Okay, yeah. You should do Rafael Soriano, yes. And there was maybe one other guy. It's going to be 55, I think, in the end. Okay, well, yeah, there's going to be some extra Cubans, too, because another guy defected today, so, you know. Oh, this is always growing. Yeah. But I mean, you know, what do what do crowd actually know about Andy Ibanez, right? They're just gonna think he's bad defensively just by the transitive property of the last name. Of Ibanez? Yeah. Is it uh is Raul Raul played this year? He did. He's actually on the Royals. Uh, he's in their organization at, at the World Series, but not on the roster. That's right. Isn't he the designated uh, like um, clapper? Yeah, designated clapper, and also yeah. he's he's like the uh, the veteran who's able to give interviews. Uh, yeah, right. They interview him during the game because the media loves him and he's not doing anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, oh, and I suppose, uh, this was, this is something that just happened last night. A, a bit of a morbid note, but, uh, probably something that oughtn't be ignored or at least should be mentioned is, of course, the, uh, horrifying passing of Oscar Tavares. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing good to say about it, obviously. Yeah. Except, I mean, it's, you know, it's tragic and, uh, yeah. I, I, I wish I had something really, insightful and deep to say i think jeff Sullivan did a great job kind of um expressing his thoughts on the on the issue and kind of what his reactions were and what our reactions are uh it's awful and i think um the loss of any life that young is terrible and um certainly thoughts and prayers with the cardinals and his friends and teammates and um you know his family and, and his friend's family it's just a you know a really lousy situation hey let me ask you a question and uh because I think maybe not that long ago you you wrote a piece called Why I'm Not uh, something like Why I'm Not a Big Fan of Oscar Tavares or Why I'm Not a Believer necessarily. Yeah, yeah, and and I, I'm not uh, this is not a, a figure pointing question, but I'm curious if in this particular situation, if it raises for you, if you look back at that and you're like, oh man, I wish I wish I hadn't written that, or if you are sort of cognizant of the fact that when you're writing a piece like that, you're writing about any one player's baseball skills and it's not and for you and you hope for the readers of those same pieces uh they don't regard it as a uh as a testament to that player's uh you know qualities as a as an individual yeah i mean i don't think you know at any point any player we write about could die right and i wouldn't want to think oh man we're not allowed to write about them because we'll regret something we say posthumously um, you know, I think the point I was trying to make about Oscar Tavares isn't even necessarily about him as much as it was about player types and mm-hmm. how we value different skills. And, 
Um, so, you know, certainly uh, I, w- I wish that Oscar Terras could have lived to prove me wrong mm-hmm. and develop into the superstar that a lot of people thought he was going to become. Uh, but, you know, I think at the same time our job is to write about player skills, and we try to do so in a respectful way that honors them as people but also still adds value to the readers and, right. and uh, you know, it's unfortunate that Tavares won't get a chance to make me look like an idiot. Right. And, of course, uh, you know, uh, I think you're a pretty good guy, Dave Cameron, but if I were compelled to write about your baseball skills as a major leaguer... They would be quite poor. Uh, would, I wouldn't have much to say. Well, I mean, do you think you have... Well, if we consider 20 the baseline, do you have anything that's above 20? My pace between pitches would probably be an 80. <laughs> I, would, I would take like a minute and a half between pitches. I would make Koji Uehara look like Mark Burley. I think that would be a negative thing. Yeah. That would also be a 20, wouldn't you? Uh, well, it depends on which way the scale was going. Yeah, I guess uh, it would be. I would be the slowest working pitcher in all of baseball. What, what's the, what is supposed to be the penalty if you go over the... I think it's an automatic ball. Okay. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I heard that squeak, America. Yeah, that's my. Sorry, I apologize. It's my dog not doing that. Well, listen, I, I'm gonna let you go. I, you know how how I feel about the World Series. It's great to watch, and uh, you could say you could talk about Madison Bumgarner's pitches, um, but I think that it's it's because it, it, I've seen comments to this effect. I think Mike Petriello made a comment to this effect, um, maybe during yesterday's game when Ned Yost was or wasn't making the pitching change. Something you know, something to the fact that uh, I have abandoned all attempts of trying to understand uh, right. the strategy being employed here. I'll just enjoy the drama. Right. Yeah, I think that's you know, I, there is times when you say, okay, let's discuss this move and whether it wasn't the, was or was not the right move, and the you know the positives or negatives of making a different decision. And then at some point you just realize, you know, they're not going to do what we suggest. They're not going to pinch it for the pitcher in the fourth inning. Uh, they're probably not going to be as aggressive with bullpen usage as they should be. Um, you know, they're going to make things, they're going to do things that are mathematically incorrect. If we get mad at them every time, we're going to be mad the whole time. Right. Yeah. And we shouldn't do that. We should, uh, what was it, uh, Jeff said, we should eat, uh, we should eat gelato with each other instead. Yeah. Which is, I, I mean, sound advice regardless of the occasion. Yeah. Did you happen to see the chat transcript from when I recommended the gelato to Jeff? No, I did not see that. Yeah, I think it was in the Game 2 live blog when the game became eminently boring, and mm-hmm. we stopped talking about the game itself. Uh, and I suggested that I had just recently found a gelato brand okay. uh, uh, that was the best I've ever had. Uh, it's called Gelato Fiasco. It's okay. apparently a store from uh, Maine where two guys uh, opened up a gelato shop, and they also ship it to specialty uh, stores. I found mine at the Fresh Market, which is a Whole Foods-type store. Uh, sells very expensive, overpriced things. But for those on the East Coast or who have access to the Internet, which you probably do if you're listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, they do ship. And uh, not cheap, you know, maybe a special occasion gelato, but uh, quite good. How's the mouth feel on that gelato? Uh, excellent. Okay. And yeah. the taste, how's the taste part? Uh, that, that's most important to me, and I think it was the best tasting gelato or ice cream I've ever had. Okay. And any flavors in particular that you're, uh... I mean, the first one we got was the dark chocolate sea salt, sea salt caramel, which oh, is kind of like the, yeah. you know, the flavor that everyone's going for now, but this is the best of, of this attempt that I've had of anyone. Yeah. That's, a, well, that's a strong flavor combo. It's really not so bad, yeah. Yeah, it's not so bad. All right. Yeah. Well, Dave Cameron, uh, I think you've fulfilled your obligation. I appreciate it. Anytime I can end with an ice cream recommendation, it's a good podcast. Yeah, that's right. All right, we'll stick around for one second. But in the meantime, on behalf of myself and uh, obviously the, the wide listenership, thank you very much. 
You're welcome. All right, that is Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. All right.